developing marital intimacy. Marriage today is a lot like flies on a window pane. Those in, one out. Those out, one in. <laughs> I think it should be compulsory that every contemporary marriage license have stamped upon it, caution, this marriage may be hazardous to your health. Marriage has never been more popular, never more perverted. Here is a fictional page out of a dictionary in the year 2010 defining marriage. Old English, now obsolete. A contract between a man and a woman called respectively husband and wife. A special kind of social order for the founding and maintaining of a family practiced from prehistoric times to the last of the 20th century. Occurs now only among primitive cultures and in ethnic or religious subgroups in isolated locations. That is not a put on. That is a prophecy by a leading marriage sociologist teaching in one of our universities and writing extensively for the market. James Peterson, professor of sociology at USC, has done the most extensive research in America on a longitudinal basis with married couple. He studied a select group of couples who were married at least 15 years and up to as much as 45. And in his study, he determined he could not find six out of a hundred who were fulfilled in the relationship. Most of the marriages were in a coma. Now, I know you think I'm talking about the non-Christian world, but I'm not. Intellectual honesty compels me to conclude that there is really not that much significant difference between the marriages outside of the churches and inside of the churches. My own studies lead me to the conclusion that the average pastor in America spends from 60 to 85% of his counseling time with marital problems. George B. Leonard wrote a book entitled The Man and Woman Thing. And he said, and I quote, We can orbit the earth, touch the moon, yet this society has not devised a way for a man and a woman to live together for seven straight days with any assurance of harmony and personal growth. End of quote. It's easy to get married. Many churches, all you need to do is to grunt. And you're in. But it's another side of the coin to build a marriage. That takes a lot of effort. I am convinced, after over 30 years in the ministry, that there is nothing which is more determinative than your marriage. It will either make or break your ministry. It's either your greatest asset or your greatest liability. I have a friend of mine in the Dallas community. He's a very remarkable individual, highly competent.
He interviews prospective executives for corporations across America for jobs paying from fifty to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. So he's looking for a high level person. Some time ago I asked him, what's the most significant thing? He said, our involvement with a man and his wife. We are spending increasingly more time in terms of the man's marriage. We figure it costs us from fifty to $75,000 before a man is ever worth a dime to an organization. And we have determined that a man can sustain anything in the pressures of executive life if his marriage is intact, if it's fulfilling, if he can go home and have a woman who is the delight of his life. But if he has to go home to hell on earth, then he will decimate his executive functioning. That's what I believe about the navigators. I happen to believe, and it's my conviction, not because I'm here. You follow me around, you will hear me tell it elsewhere. Navigators represent, in my judgment, one of the most significant organizations in this generation for the cause of Christ. And because you are that kind of person, the most important thing that concerns me about you is your relationship to your man or to your woman. Missionaries have been telling us for years that the greatest impact on a pagan culture is the distinctively Christian home. And now we are living in a culture every week that passes by becoming more pagan. And therefore, your marriage and your family life, if distinctively Christian, becoming more of a phenomenon. Probably the greatest leverage you have in this hell-bent society. Now I want to erase an idiocy from your thinking. It's a persistent notion, and it's this, that all marriages are either good or bad. Nothing could be further from the truth. The truth is that all marriages, I mean yours, has strengths and weaknesses. A marriage is not a static thing. There's no such thing as a laissez-faire human relationship, which has been well defined as the mess we're in. All marriages are dynamic, or they are deteriorating, and ultimately die. The only option to you in your marriage is either growth or the grave. It's progress or perish. Now, the usual definition of a good and a bad marriage is this. A good marriage is one in which there are no serious problems. Did you hear that? Let me run it by again. Some of you took a gasp. The usual definition of a good marriage is that it's one in which there are no serious problems. And you will notice that definition is negative in its orientation. A good marriage has problems because it's got people 
And wherever you have people, you have problems. It's not just a facade of harmony before others. You see, that's just the external component. And that doesn't tell you much of anything. Most of us are masters of the veneer. I've had people in my office who have told me that they have gone to a church for 17 years, 17 years of marital hell, and not one person in the church ever caught on. Well, how do you define a bad marriage? Well, a bad marriage is one in which you have problems. Which, by the way, is the mark of a growing relationship. You don't have any problems, you're probably paralyzed. <laughs> a bad marriage is one in which they're working on the relationship and oh, my shattered nerves, if they should ever put it out, that they are going for counseling. <coughs> have you heard the latest? And if you don't believe it, let's suppose we were having a prayer meeting here at the Glen and I got up right in the middle of it and said, hey, friends, would you do me a favor? Would you pray with Gene and me and ask that God will increase the quality of our marriage? We're very much concerned that it will be the kind of thing that will make an impact for Jesus Christ. And we'd like you to pray with us. <laughs> Why, after that got into the evangelical grapevine, I'd meet it in Boston. <laughs> Understand your wife left you, Allie. Did you get that divorce this year or was it last year? That's the problem with most of us. If you really knew what you needed to know about your marriage, you would be weeping. You'd be on your feet at the first opportunity to say, Oh, brethren in Christ, pray with me. That God will enrich our marriage. I'm talking to the couple who, if we were able to scale it and rate it, has the best marriage going in the Navigator organization. If you think it is and fail to cultivate it, tomorrow the seeds of death will be in it. And this is complicated by the fact that the bulk of research in this field is directed toward pathological marriages. There are volumes written on why marriages fail, but we really don't know very much about successful marriages. A lot of study needs to be done. And repeatedly, I see committed Christian couples in a state of despair and frustration because things are not growing personally and or interpersonally in their marriage. And they are asking in terms of the song, is this all there is? What's everybody so excited about? And they are perceptively related to the Lord and His Word enough to know there's got to be more than what I have experienced. And that's what I believe. Every good navigator needs to minister in this area preventively and correctively, both in terms of his own marriage and in terms of the marriage of others. So I want to be diag diagnostic and I want to be remedial. I want to ask and answer two questions. Number one, what's wrong with Christian marriages? And secondly, what can be done to improve Christian marriages and namely yours? Number one, why are we in trouble? And we are hurting. We are in trouble for three reasons. And I want you to think your way through this, dear brethren. Because you are going to make an impact in this area as perhaps no other group that I can think of. Number one, we are failing in marriage because of improper choices. 
The average marriage choice is made in immaturity with superficiality and without adequate exposure. And I am so delighted to know that the navigators are taking a new tack in this area. And with everything I got, I want to support that. Jack and Carol Mayhall shared with me up at Green Lake what God was leading them to do. George Sanchez and Jerry White just the other day filled me in on what they are doing. I shout glory. Because as an organization, we haven't set any track records in this area. There is no such thing in our culture as making an intelligent choice without adequate exposure to the opposite sex. And oftentimes we have been guilty of reducing this to sort of a clinical type of approach. You know, you just sit in limbo and wait for it to hit you. No chemical reaction. You know, don't get any chemistry going because that's of the flesh. But you know, I find Christians whose gonads function. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and then all of a sudden a guy gets into a marriage, convinced this is God's will, and lo and behold, I gotta to relate to this. What is your name again? <laughs> Evangelical communities are contributing to the problem in two areas. Number one, by teaching only one strand of a two-strand truth. You know what we teach? Don't marry a non-Christian. And if anybody even moves in the direction of a non-Christian, everybody in the community hits the fan. Hold it. It's Roman Catholic. It's a pagan. And man, believe me, we've come through. Most kids are neurotic in this area. Boy, we've communicated that. And it's good that we have. Our problem is we haven't communicated enough. We haven't communicated that it is true that you are not to marry outside of the faith. It is also true that you should not marry everyone in the faith. Not every Christian is a good partner for you. But we're not teaching that. And we need to teach that. Fantastic guy. Delightful woman. The question is, for you... The second area in which we are bending young people out of shape is with our pressure to get married. And we do this very subtly. Uh, aren't you married yet? <laughs> well, what's your problem? You a pervert? Some kids told me in Washington, D.C., in Fourth Presbyterian Church last week, they said, Prof, we feel like social lepers. I said, just for the information, how old are you? One guy said 26, another guy said 28. I said, I got the most fantastic news in the world for you. Every year, over 26 makes you a better risk as a marriage partner, statistically. Every year under 21 makes you a poorer statistic. So what's everybody uptight about? Well, the second area that's causing a lot of problem is unrealistic expectations. And there are a number of things that we could talk about in this area, such as this. 
The average young person going into marriage doesn't have a clue as to what real love and real marriage is. He's not in love, he's in lust. That's why, you know, these kids are crawling each other's frame. And six weeks into the marriage, they can't even sleep in the same bed. They can't tolerate one another. Now, how in the world did that happen? Well, you had a guy marrying a body. Not a person. You know, if you marry a body, then every year that goes by, you're further out of business than you were the year before. <laughs> Don't look at me that way. <laughs> See, bodies deteriorate. Persons develop. But I also feel these unrealistic expectations move at another level. And that is, many young people come into marriage expecting marriage to do what only God can do. And that's why I repeatedly teach young people, marriage is not a question of right finding the right partner. It's a question of being the right person. And maybe the reason God has kept you from finding the right person the right partner is that you really are not the right person. You're not ready. And he's trying in grace to preserve you from all kinds of unnecessary hassles. I kid come into my office a few years ago. He said, well, Prof, I'm thinking about getting married. Well, I said, wonderful. Said, you got any candidates? No? Well, Got to work on that. He said, I began at a deeper level, a little philosophical. Well, wonderful, what's that level? And he said, well, I've been thinking through what kind of a girl I want. Well, he said, I approve of that. I said, what kind of girl are you looking for? And he pulled out three typewritten sheets. <laughs> I said, uh, do you mind if I ask you a question? No, he said, of course not. I said, how many of these things are true of you? I beg your pardon? <laughs> I said, how many of these things are true of you? He said, man, I, I never thought about that. I said, that's your problem. Third, our Christian marriages are failing because of inadequate preparation. This is one of the most important of human relationships, and yet it's the one for which we're least prepared. Why do you believe it? My friend, it's easier to get married than it is to become a garbage collector in the city of Dallas. You've got to take a three-week intensive training program. <laughs> For a job that pays $100 a week and all you can eat. <laughs> We spend more time preparing for the wedding than we do for the marriage. And most of the preparation to which a young person is exposed is counterproductive. I was in Rockford and I watched a documentary, an ABC documentary, one hour on contemporary marriage and there was not one positive, normative model in the whole hour. They had three people, two men and a woman, who were living together in, you know, one of the newer styles. So the interviewer said, you know, don't you find it creates some problems? Oh, no, no, it doesn't create any problem. Well, I mean, you know, if uh, you wanted to make love to your, I guess you call him your husband, uh, and the other one is there, because they all sleep in the same bed, they had informed the interviewer, you know, this is no problem. Oh, no. No problem at all. We're understanding. We're freed up people. And I sat there and came right off of the bed and said, no, you are sick people. 
And the problem is, you see, the average kid comes up in this culture and he doesn't know righteousness from unrighteousness. He doesn't know what's normal from what's perverted. Why, man, I get problems in the seminary that if you had told me ten years ago I would face, I'd say, you got to be kidding. No way. Not here. Because these kids come out of this culture. And here's a guy that slept with every girl, shacked up with every person coming down a pike, and now he's into Christ, and now he's growing in the Word, now he's married to this one woman. Trying to develop a relationship and covered over with guilt. And mind all screwed up with images from the past. That's a problem. And if you want to make a contribution to the next generation of disciples, you prepare them for marriage. And I'll clue you, you all have some of the finest disciples that the navigators have ever produced. Well, how can we do that? How can we improve? Our marriages. And I want to awaken you to the undeveloped potential for growth in your own marriage. Let's begin with a proposition. Intimacy develops when a couple. And I want to give you several things. Intimacy develops when a couple. First. develops an effective communicational system. When a person develops an effective communicational system. Now, there are four components to communication. Here's a husband. Here's a wife. There is, first of all, the component of talking. We're all well aware of that. And as I will show you, the poorest of the four components. I'm not recommending you go into the silence treatment. Many a marriage, many a Christian marriage is a conspiracy of silence. Over and over again, I probe around and they just say, well, we just, we just choose not to invade that area. We just don't talk about it. My dear wife and I, for years, never went into the financial area because it was too hot to handle. And one or the other or both of us, you know, would sooner or later lose the joy. So the best thing to do is just shut it down. And what a devastating thing that was. You will never solve your problems by retreating into silence. Secondly, there is the component of listening. I'm sure you prayed for the gift of speech. Why don't you pray for the gift of silence? It's the greater gift. Used to have a saying in the Roman Empire by the beggars, speech for a shekel, silence for two. Beautiful. The third component is understanding. That's the result of this dialogue of talking and listening. Understanding involves a meeting of meanings. Not what did this person say, but what does this person understand by what he said. Not what did this person communicate, but I wonder how he feels. I know what he said, but are the words betraying or communicating the feeling? The fourth, by the way, these are arranged in ascending order of importance. The least important, talking. The most important desire. Leading marital authority said, quote, it is not the ability to communicate that is lost when marriages grow apart, 
It is the desire to communicate that undergoes change. When one or the other no longer wants to be understood or to be understanding, then distance will develop. And this is why in the most intimate of human relationships, familiarity does breed contempt. Because it doesn't foster communication. Now, verse of Scripture. John, I'm sorry, James 1.19. Let every man be swift to what? Here. Slow to what? Okay, so you got that already set up. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to get angry. Because that does not produce the righteousness of God. Sweetheart, run it by again. I'm awfully sorry. I really wasn't listening. And I really want to hear what you're saying. Son, give that to me again. I'm afraid I've been tuned out like most adults. And I'm desperately concerned to know how you feel. You know what some of you are going to have to do who have teenagers? I'll tell you. Some of you are going to be hit right between the eyes before you're ever going to make any progress with your teenage kids. You're going to have to go home, and someday you're going to have to say, Hey, buddy, unload. Drop the truck. And you're going to listen to stuff that you won't like to hear. But it's what you need to hear. It's what's kicking the slats out of the kid's life on the inside. It's that resentment that's built up over the people you got living in a home when you have all kinds of time for them. But you keep giving me that jazz. You're just too busy to spend time with me. And I don't appreciate it. And for the first time in your life, you keep your mouth shut. Except to say, I really understand how you feel. And maybe, forgive me. I forgot my most important ministry. Watch what happens. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to get angry. By the way, you got a good visual aid in your body. Do you notice that? Ever occur to you that you have two ears, but only one mouth? <laughs> Ever occur to you what would happen had God reversed that? <laughs> I want to share a little research with you done by Albert Morabian, who's done the most extensive research lasting over a decade in the realm of marital communication. This is what he said. came up with a formula to express how you communicate in a marriage. He said you communicate in a marriage by words alone approximately 7%. That's impressive, isn't it? Particularly since we rely so heavily. How many times have I told you I don't know, I lost track. <laughs> Computer broke down. Second, tone of voice. That's inflection. 38%. See, it's how you say what you say. I love you. Well, how do I say it? I love you! <laughs> All right, I love you. Now get off my back! You know, that really comes over like horseradish. <laughs> Watch this one. Facial expressions, postures, gestures, what we call body movements, 55%. And every man in this room that's married knows exactly what I'm talking about because the average woman has a radar screen built in that's going... <laughs> Picking up all the blitz. You walk in the front door and 
She says, hi, hey, hi. How's the ministry going on the campus? Hi, oh, fine. What's the matter? Did you have problems? No, I didn't have any problem. Oh, I sense there's something bothering you. No, there's nothing bothering me. Don't bug me. The truth of the matter is you're coming through loud and clear. And I can walk through the front door in my home in Dallas, never open my trap. And my wife will tell you exactly what I'm thinking and how I'm feeling. Now, I want to hit you with something. You ready? Because I didn't know this. I was taught this by the young lady that will arrive in a few hours. She taught me that relationships are far more important than roles. That's spelled R-O-L-E-S. And just to fill in the equation, add and rules. Some of you people, man, you've outdone God with the commandments. You boil them down to ten. You got 117 for Mondays. Now, I'm glad she's not here because I embarrass her to tears, as you can appreciate. But I want you to get the message. I want you to get the message. I want you to know that I did not always have the perspective that I had. That I had to be taught it just like you need to be taught it. And that I was so fogged out. What when Doug was talking last night about a man of God. Man, I could almost come right up out of the chair. Amen, that was me. God's gift to this generation. Boy, now let me give you a little background. I came from a Pennsylvania Dutch family. Does that tell you anything? Doesn't? Okay, I'll fill you in. My grandmother reared me. My home was immaculate. When I was in Holland, it reminded me so much of my childhood. It was a delightful experience. Those beautiful little homes, sometimes as old as all get out, but just spotless. You know, a front step, woo, immaculate. Little flower pots painted, you know, the works. My wife and I walk down just looking in the windows. So beautiful. They keep the windows open over there. <laughs> My home was immaculate. My cellar basement floor was cleaner than most homes I get into. I can never remember once going like that on pipes and finding dust. My grandmother used to scrub by hand the front concrete steps three times every day. We used to kid her, Grandma, when you die, we're going to bury you with a mop and a broom. (laughs) Well, then I got married. And uh, my wife did not exactly come from that kind of home, (laughs) which is the understatement of this generation. (laughs) And we had some fascinating adjustments. (laughs) And then I got four kids, and it got more exciting. I can remember one day, boy, she polished the kitchen floor. You could see her face in it. I thought, oh, boy, (laughs) the kingdom's right around the corner. You know, Bob, my older son, is in the disciple-making ministry in Dallas right now on the university campus, walked in a door with a little picture in his grubby hand and the filthiest feet, Texas gumbo, all over it, right across the floor, throws himself into the arms of his mother and says, Look, Mommy, look what I drawed. <laughs> and my wife picked him up and lathered him with kisses and... Ask him to tell her about the picture, and I was up the walls. Oh! Ruin. And after old Bob ran along, my lovely wife turned to me and said, Sweetheart, I can always clean the floor again. 
but I can't build the relationship again. You ever learned that? You? Great big navigator? You? It's a survival factor. Why, my four kids used to come in the house and go right by me and never even say hi. You know, after a while, that is a way of getting to you. You know, here I am, great big spiritual me, and they're ignoring me. And one day I sat down and said to myself, you know, if I were my kids, I wouldn't talk to me either. And I just want you to know for the record, you promise you won't tell her this. I just want you to know for the record that I would have wiped four kids clean out of the saddle were it not for a woman who taught me relationships are far more important than roles. See, if I were to go into your homes, you know what I'd discover? I'll tell you, I'll discover 95 out of 100 are functioning very well as a mother. You never miss. But you're not functioning too well as a wife. So busy taking care of the kids, getting it all together, you know what we're supposed to be doing the house. You know, the pops coming unglued. And if I were to interview the guy and get into his life, I'd discover he's functioning very well as a father. You know, man, he's really onto this. Boy, I spent some time. Great, it's my disciple. But what about mom? See, he's functioning well. She's functioning well in their roles, but not in their relationships. There is a second suggestion I'd like to give. I sort of get the impression that we may not get through. Intimacy develops, secondly, when a couple is willing to run the risk of greater openness. When a couple is willing to run the risk of greater openness. Good marriages always have one thing in common. They know each other very well. Very interesting to check the studies. Good marriages and poor marriages face exactly the same problem. The only difference is in their communicational system, their willingness to be open and face realistically and honestly. By the way, I want to give you another assignment. I want to give every woman in this room an assignment. I want to give every man an assignment. You got this for the rest of your life. And that's become a student of your partner. You ought to be a master of your man. Gentlemen, this will take every bit of competence you got to be a student of your wife. If I hear it once, I hear it a hundred times in the course of a couple months, people in my office say, well, you know, if I were married to someone else, well, Dad, I got news for you. You're not. So we're going to have to work on this one. What are her needs? What are her problems? I'm spilling my guts for you, and I'm doing it with design. I came from a broken home. My parents were separated before I was born. I never saw them together once except when I was 18, when I was called to testify in a divorce court in Philadelphia. So this is the kind of model I had for a marriage. And when you come to Jesus Christ, my friends, this does not automatically mean that you shed 
all of the emotional baggage of the past. And my number one problem as a person for many years in my ministry, it was the one area in which the devil could be convinced he'd wipe me out, was depression. I know all of the dynamics as to why I got depressed. I get the whole picture. But I could minister up here at the Glen, have a fantastic ministry of the Word, go out in the church, go to all kinds of things, you know, just way beyond yourself. Obviously God working. And man, the moment I hit Dallas, I crash. Okay, so I'm married to a woman. You know, that's going to discourage you. Here's your husband been out two, three weeks, and he flies in on an airplane, and you know, he no sooner gets off the airplane, and he won't talk to me. He's drowning in his depression. Used to hit me. Boy, just like a two-by-four. Now you remember that sweet woman many times saying to me, Howie, why don't we pray together? I don't want to pray. Why don't we read the Word together? I don't want to read the Word. Instead of her saying, I thought you were the great big Bible teacher. Tell everybody else how to live the Christian life and now look at you. You know, that really helps. <laughs> she would lean over and kiss me with a warmest kiss and say... That's okay, sweetheart. I understand. And she passed that on to four kids. And even in the years of the teenagers when I was coming out of it, but you know, every now and then when you've got a critical problem, God will keep you on the ragged edge. Never completely into victory in order to keep you dependent. And I know to this day, Though I am so far out of the woods, it's unreal compared with where I was. I know that that's constantly a live option to me. And I've got to keep independence. When I was coming up through those teen years, boy, I got four kids. They've got to relate to me. And I would get into one of these rhubarbs, and I can remember four kids picking me up bodily, carrying me into the family room, getting out our family Bible, sticking it in my hands and say, Dad, read the Word to us. Pray with us. See, that's why I said what I said to you yesterday, that that greatest hang-up you have with your kids is not your hang-ups. Man, they're more perceptive than you are. My kids can read me like a book. And they have a lot of understanding as to why I am the way I am coming out of that background. And it's no problem to them. The real hang-up is our dishonesty. Our willingness to say, Hey, buddy, I blew it. And I really appreciate your support. Before my younger son went to university, he wrote me a letter. I didn't know it. He left it on my desk. I took him to the airport. My wife, another of the kids who was then living in the community. When I came home, to that. It was a letter of appreciation for what I had contributed to his life. You know, every parent needs one of these every now and then. You know, when you get feeling sorry for yourself, you go back to file and pull that one out. I got some other letters I don't pull out. In fact, I never put in the file. And he said, uh, Dad, I know of your problems. Do you think that makes me think less of you? On the contrary, I think more of you. When I think of what the grace of God has overcome in your life, I'm going off to college with a new lease on my spiritual life to know that the same God who's been working in your life and that I have seen is able to work in my life. I repeat to you, my dear brethren, in Jesus Christ, don't let the devil wipe you out. Some of you come from as bad, maybe worse, trashed up backgrounds than I came from. And boy, you've got this emotional... Hang up. 
you know, the baggage is with you all the time. And you constantly need to come to grips with us. And your partner needs to come to grips with us. I'm married to this man. And he's an insecure person. And I'm married to this woman. And I need to tell her a hundred times a day I love you. One of my choice friends who put this message for his wife on a tape because she's going through the most severe depression in her life and she's now coming out of the trough and she used to sit down in a room and play that thing over and over again. To know that you love. That's a student of your partner and that's what it will take. Now, I provided for you a means of evaluation. I want to talk about this just briefly and then we'll wind it up here. This calls for constant evaluation. There is a book you ought to get a hold of by Howard and Charlotte Kleinbell entitled Intimacy in Marriage. Eternity Magazine asked me to recommend some books for 1975 and this was one which I placed on that list. It's one of the profound books. I'm sorry to say it is really not written from a Christian point of view. But it'll do something for you. Not a little Mickey Mouse book that you read with a box of candy in one hand and watching the television. You know, you got to sit down, stretch your mental muscles a little bit, maybe to the breaking point. But hang in there. And you will notice on this little sheet that I have devised, it's an adaptation from this. I've given you an instrument that you can use with other people, but begin with yourself. My wife and I do this every year, sometimes several times during the year. There are 12 areas, beginning with sexual, emotional, intellectual, going down to spiritual and communicational. Now, my friends, you've got to be honest. Don't play games. Get out of the fundamentalist conditioning of thinking you got to show up better than you really are. You see, that's the way we teach the Christian life, by the way. A number of us were talking about that after the session yesterday. Boy, I hope God delivers you from that. I hope God gives you such a gutsy, realistic approach to the Christian life that the moment you talk, people immediately say, Hey, that guy's been with it. That's for real. I'm so tired of reading these books. I'm so tired of hearing these guys put this stuff off. This pure idealism. I asked Dr. Ironside one time, what do you think of the deeper life? Well, he said, I think it's wonderful for people who have a lot of time and a lot of money. <laughs> oh, boy. A lady came up after a meeting that I chauffeured him to in, you know, in typical evangelical fashion. Dr. Ironside, you know, I pray six hours every day. He said, really, madam, what else do you do? And she kind of was taken back and said, well, he said, if I had nothing more to do than you do, I'd probably pray for six hours too. Thank you. Next one. You know, and I'm sitting there as a young guy. (laughs) So this is what I want you to do. I put it on both sides, though actually you've got two of them, so you don't need to use it that way. Same thing on both sides. You fill out one side. And get your partner to fill out the other. Now, very honestly. For instance, let's take the first one, sexual. I mean, if I ask you right now for an honest-to-God evaluation of your sexual life, where would you put it on this little continuum? One being the poorest, seven being the best. Well, I do this with my students all the time and use it as a basis for counseling with them. And uh, one guy checked, seven plus... I turned it over. His wife had two minus. (laughs) And this guy sat there with the most crestfallen look. He said, "Don't, don't be depressed, my friend. We now got a basis for really making some progress. And the problem in your marriage is that you're out of your tree in this experience and don't even have a clue that she's minimally satisfied. And your primary job is satisfying her. So I don't care if you've got a seven. I want to know, is, 
What is she getting? Because that's your assignment. And they just graduated. <laughs> so they came up after graduation, threw their arms around me, knocked my hat <laughs> down the stairs. <laughs> Tassel and all. Said, boy, prof, we love you. We love you. We love you. 24 plus. <laughs> Both of us. Now, let me tell you the subtlety in this. One time my wife and I, well, it's about six years ago now, did this again. And we both came up with a seven. So you say, man, that's fantastic. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. That's telling you where you are now. But you may be settling for too little. That may be your highest expectation as of now. <laughs> and every time we talk about this, we roar. Because we look back to six years ago and say, you got to be kidding, sweetheart, that we put down seven. We should have put minus seven. Compare with where we are now. See, that's the key. That's what keeps it growing. And the subtlety is you think, well, you know, we, we had no problem in that area. I say, you got a big problem in that area. You're settling for too little. That's a problem. Then I gave you some questions, and I want you to use them with the people with whom you are working. And I'll tell you how to start it. You can use it in groups. I'm not talking about sensitivity sessions. Here's the way I started. I said, I want to give you a piece of paper, and I'm going to ask you some of these questions, and I want you to write down your answer, no name attached, and throw it into what we call Pandora's box. And then we pull the stuff out, and we read it. No name. And the interesting thing is to see the other people identify with it. <laughs> you know, we thought we were the only ones. <laughs> we read one one day. This guy was so excited, he said, Praise the Lord! <laughs> you know, everybody looked around. This is your question? No, 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 it's not my question. It's not my question. <laughs> Oh, man, working with people. You know, we should be president of the United States. <laughs> Woo! See, then you begin to get people to open up because they are always identified. Whenever you mention anything in the area of a marriage, they're immediately saying, whoops, how does that relate to us? And then what happens, you see, is on the way home, he begins to say... <laughs> That was kind of interesting, wasn't it? <laughs> then after you've done that, then I use it with a couple and say, okay, here we are at the Glen, here we are in this group, and we've given some input and we've prepared you for it. Now, we want you to go back to your room. You fill out the answer to these questions as a man. You fill the, out the answer to, to these questions as a woman independently. And then I want you to come together and share the results. That's an eye-opening experience. Look at some of the ones that are on there. You can see what it would do. And this is the principle. Disclosure develops disclosure. And I want to recommend one thing for you. We're through. I would recommend for every couple here, and for those of you who are unmarried and who someday may move into a marriage that you start right from the first year, setting up a husband-wife retreat every year. Just you and your partner. No kids. Get somebody to take care of. Give them a break. They need it, let's face it. And you know, it's wonderful to come back from a conference like this because I've had kids tell me, you know, boy, I sure wish my folks would go off to that conference more often. Because <laughs> you know, they come back and, oh, man, I'm so glad to see you. You, glad to see me? You told me to go play in traffic before. 
(laughs) Some of you people. We've done this from the earliest years of our marriage. We had a knockdown drag out in one of physical violence. My unregenerate father was too significant a person. He broke me of that once for all. When I sassed my grandmother, he knocked me clean under the dining table. So I would never do that. Never in my life have I put a hand on her. In a violent way, but all verbally. You can get that razor sharp thing on. See, when you got a gift of preaching, you're even more effective. (laughs) You know, you're articulate. I mean, it's not just like a clod telling her off. You know, it's really, you could write it down. <laughs> but if she would share with you, boy, what great experiences. Sit down, evaluate. Where are we? Where are we going? Dear Father, Father,